Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he, being Christ, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I just read the Beatitudes from Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount. And, of course, it goes on from there, and it's quite a long sermon. But right here in the Beatitudes, Jesus names some qualities that I think are important for Christians to consider as part of their own qualities. When I see poor in spirit, or meek, or mournful, I think of being humble. And to be humble is something that every Christian must be. Not because, you know, it's necessarily a command, thou shalt be humble. It's that that sort of character is someone who will listen to God. Someone who will not scoff and assume that they have accomplished everything on their own. You know, we see we're full of so many great leaders today, or terrible leaders, if you will. People who have put themselves on a pedestal. Even though they might claim to be humble, they are anything but. And they will invoke the name of God for their political campaigns. They'll pretend to be humble. They'll go up there and accept like a, an award for best actor at the Oscars. And they'll say, I'm so humbled by this award. And I understand the use of that phrase. I mean, I've used it similarly. But really, they were just elevated above everyone else. I don't think that's really the definition of humble. Because to be humble is quite a bit different. It's more in line with being meek, in a sense. The definition of meek is quiet, gentle, and easily imposed on, submissive. We shouldn't be meek to the world, but we should be meek to God, submissive to God, and easily imposed on. If he says something, we're going to do it. That's the attitude that Christians should have. And according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the definition of humble is not proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive. Reflecting, expressing, 
or offered in a spirit of deference or submission, a humble apology, ranking low in a hierarchy or scale, not costly or luxurious. And that definition is in line with what the Bible says about being humble and the benefits thereof. The world will use humble, I don't know, as a, a, I guess a badge to make themselves look even greater when they're anything but. The world says, be rich and famous. Say that you are humbled when you get great honors. But what is a humble person, really? I read the definition. It's pretty straightforward. Well, let's look over some of the humble benefits of being humble. Because we think of humble, we think someone who's lowly, in a sense. And we think of someone who maybe, well, can be walked all over. And the Christian doesn't need to think of humble in that sense. What we need to do is look to those who have been humbled. That's sometimes the greatest way to learn what it means to be humble and how we can become more humble. So today I'd like to talk about King Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon. But first, let's go over some of those humble benefits I was talking about. Psalm 25, verse 9. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. Psalm 147, verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Proverbs three thirty-four. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs eleven two, When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs twenty nine twenty three, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So we see here it's established not only from the own definition in the English dictionary that we read, but here, what does God do? He contrasts pride with humble. So let's talk about one of the least humble people we've ever known, King Nebuchadnezzar II. And we can contrast him with Moses. Moses, after all, in the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 3, it said of him, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. Now that line, that verse, is from a different story that we're not going to get into today. It's a different context. But we also know how God felt about Moses, how he spoke to him uh, as a friend, as a friend would face-to-face, in a sense. And we can see that that's a good quality. And Nebuchadnezzar did not have very many good qualities. As we see here, uh, just a quick few bullet points he, uh, when he was younger, he worked as a laborer in temple restoration in the temple of Marduk. Temple of Marduk, there were a couple different ones in the city of Babylon. Uh, these would have been large ziggurat-type buildings. Think of a pyramid, in a sense, with a shrine at the top. And Marduk, we will get into in a little bit, uh, but he was a Babylonian god. And Nebuchadnezzar himself... 
He claimed the grant of universal kingship by Marduk. He prayed to have no opponent from horizon to sky. So he was, in a sense, subject to someone above him, although that someone above him was false. But what did he do with that spiritual inclined mind? To have no opponent from horizon to sky. He sounds more like Conan the Barbarian than he does a peaceful leader of the people. Of course, this is the same Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed Jerusalem and Solomon's temple and took the Jews captive as slaves. And in an act of pure vanity, built a large golden statue of himself. Um, I forgot to make note of the measurements, but I think I read somewhere it was somewhere between 30 and 60 feet tall. It was gigantic. And it was about as the size of a, an obelisk, if you've seen those in Egypt. The large, pretty much just a line with a little triangle at the top. Very large, gigantic statue. And in a way, elevating himself above the Marduk he claims to worship. Marduk also had a golden statue. Not that big, but, you know, all the cool things are made of gold, I guess. And again, I want to really focus on him because I think sometimes the best way to learn something is to fail ourselves or to watch someone fail and learn from their mistakes. And Nebuchadnezzar made many mistakes. This here is a picture of Marduk, the supreme deity of Babylon, presided over justice, compassion, healing, regeneration, magic, fairness, the whole enchilada. There's a sort of evolution of this character. started off as more of a storm god, but then became more and more powerful and more and more political. So all the kings loved Marduk. He also had a pet snake dragon. I'm not going to try to pronounce that name up there that you might see on the PowerPoint, but it's there for, if you're interested. Um, I don't know. That's the sort of worldly god that we're used to. Um, he was, you know, seen by Romans as Jupiter, by the Greeks as Zeus. They had a familiarity with Marduk. And he was also worshipped by the Persians, even, once the Persians eventually took over Babylon. And they would sack Babylon, take everything over, and then rebuild his temples. Marduk was a big deal down there. And this is in the Sumerian area. And the worship of Marduk was pretty elaborate. Of course, they in Babylon alone, there were two chief temples, the Sagila and the Edamanaki, which would have been, of course, as I said, a ziggurat with a shrine of Marduk at the top. And the poem, Enuma Elish, was recited every year at the New Year Festival. And the king would actually go out and he would read these things or recite these things. I'm not necessarily saying Nebuchadnezzar did that, but that was the pattern of Babylonian kings. And this Enuma Elish is actually their creation myth. It was uh, also known as the Seven Tablets of Creation. It was not super short. And of course there were priests and priestesses for Marduk and Oddly enough, Nebuchadnezzar was hailed by some as progressive because he elevated women in his society. Not to the degree that they are today, but there were priestesses. 
they had uh, an important role in the temples. And for some reason, if you look up Nebuchadnezzar online today and do some research, you'll find people going, wow, he, he had uh, equal rights for women. Amazing. Not really the case. But people like to look at past historical figures and, I don't know, compare and contrast them to modern leaders, which is, I think is pretty normal, but I don't know. That was a little bizarre. And, of course, as previously mentioned, Marduk had a golden statue, and it was vital to the coronation of kings. And the reason I bring this up is because, again, Nebuchadnezzar had his own golden statue. And we can see from his actions and from the pattern established by this history that it was probably a lot more than just a figure ornament. Obviously, we know from that story in Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar required people to bow down to the golden image of himself. But this golden statue of Marduk was also vital to the coronation of kings. A new king needed to take the hands of Marduk to legitimize his rule. Again, not that every king literally did that, but this is written of in their writings, and it was a big part of their society. And as previously mentioned, the kings of Assyria and Persia also honored Marduk in inscriptions and rebuilt many of the temples. Uh, in fact, a lot of inscriptions um, were religious in nature. King Nebuchadnezzar, um, who stamped his uh, bricks with his name so that when you went to Babylon, you would see, oh, look at the amazing thing he built. He would constantly be talking about how he was a servant of Marduk. And in fact, in his vanity, he had a very ridiculously long title. He had multiple titles, including like King of the Universe or something like that. But one of his titles reads, and I quote, Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, pious prince, the favorite of the god Marduk, exalted ruler who is the beloved of the god Nabu." The one who deliberates and acquires wisdom, the one who constantly seeks out the ways of their divinity and reveres their dominion, the indefatigable governor who is mindful of provisioning Esagil and Azida daily, and who constantly seeks out good things for Babylon and Borsippa, the wise and pious one who provides for Esagil and Azida, foremost heir of Nabopalazar, king of Babylon, am I. Say that five times fast. Now, granted, that was just in writing. I doubt very much that people said that, declaring him as he went down like a parade route or something. But, again, it's important, I think, to get inside his mind a little bit for the purpose of this lesson. Because this was a man who is about to be brought very low. And, of course, Daniel served the king. Daniel being an exile from... Jerusalem, who worked for him essentially as a magician or wise man, and the king had a few different dreams, or a couple of dreams, and of course one of them was about a, a statue, and of course there's a whole other lesson you can make about that, because that statue was predicting different kingdoms to follow after Babylon and so on, all the way up to Rome and to the church, a kingdom that would not be destroyed. And now, of course, we're having a second dream 
about a giant tree. So Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to spend the rest of this lesson for the most part, if you wish to follow along. Daniel 4, chapter 1, through verse 18. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, already this is sounding very different from the Nebuchadnezzar we've already gotten to know, doesn't it? Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house excuse me, and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. The name, his name is Belteshazzar. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. According to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Now, before I continue further, I want to remind everyone briefly that when he had the previous dream of the giant statue with the different sections, the gold head and iron and so on, and bronze. When he couldn't get people to tell, explain the dream that he had and interpret it, um, he basically just said, okay, well then I'm going to kill all the magicians. I'm going to kill all the wise men. And uh, from the sound of it, there were quite a few. Until, of course, Daniel came in and interpreted the dream and put a stop to all that. But this would have been a very high-stress situation for anyone interpreting that dream or attempting to because Nebuchadnezzar for whatever reason felt well you're clearly a fraud you didn't interpret that dream I'm going to rip your limbs out of their sockets which is I think a little extreme but you know Daniel even though he was gifted with interpretation from God and served God and had no need to fear He's also a man, and no one really likes to give bad news to someone that ill-tempered. So I just want you to think about that as we continue on. In verse 10, Nebuchadnezzar says, These were the visions of my head, and while on my bed, I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, 
coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. In the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. Verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Now before we continue on, Daniel is going to interpret this dream for him, which is great because we don't have to do it. The commentary is right there in the Bible. Um, But because of Nebuchadnezzar's previous experience with Daniel and his previous experience throwing um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a fiery furnace for not refusing to bow to his golden image, because of these events where they were rescued and Daniel interpreted a previous dream, he recognizes there's something special about Daniel. And Daniel claims to speak for God. And so, well, that God gave him the information for the dreams. And because of that, and the evidence presented to him, Nebuchadnezzar believes him. But he's not letting go of Marduk. He's just like, oh, I guess this is also a pretty cool God, in a sense. So he's really not quite there to understanding or believing anything Not really. Nothing that interferes with his lifestyle. Because he can see how Daniel lives. He can see the abilities that God has given Daniel. And he can be influenced by that. And has all the information he needs to reject his false Mesopotamian gods. Including Marduk. But he doesn't. He kind of um, just adds it to his pantheon in a way. And even in this story right now that we're reading, he talks to a bunch of other magicians um, and interpreters before even getting to Daniel. He still goes back to his old, um, I guess his old faithful reserve, even though it didn't work in the past. And then he goes to Daniel. Okay, no one's able to interpret it. Now you do it. And so Daniel interprets the dream. Verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. And of course, again, remembering the high-stress situation this is, the intimidating figure Nebuchadnezzar must have been, Daniel really doesn't want to give him bad news. And I just want you to remember that. He, He knows the interpretation of the dream, and he doesn't want to share it. But he's going to. So the king spoke and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. 
he was probably visibly shaken. Nebuchadnezzar can see that Daniel is upset. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. Of course, Daniel knows it doesn't concern his enemies. Let's continue on. In verse 20, The tree that you saw which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Okay, so far so good. That sounds great, right? For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Uh, here's the problem. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you, after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Bad news. But Daniel wants to help him. Break off your sins Show mercy to the poor. We know Nebuchadnezzar didn't do that because this so-called curse is going to befall him. This prophecy is going to come true. And it's going to come true in about a year. So he's going to have a year to sit on this information, to meditate upon it, and then he'll think, oh, well, nothing's happening. I guess it's fine. And doesn't that always happen when we know something should change, but then we kind of coast for a little while? And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, he, no favors were done him by being um, as arrogant and vain as he was. In verse 34... Oh, sorry, skipped ahead. In verse 28, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like the bird's claws. The background image of this is a pretty famous painting of Nebuchadnezzar uh, living like an animal. I cropped out the insensitive bits, but... um, I know I got all that text over it, but the the look of trauma on his face um, really speaks to me when I look at his painting. Because he's lost all his power, he's lost his kingdom, all of his possessions, because he's driven away, but he's also lost his mind. Now, we know, though, that this is going to work for his good, because he's going to come to know... As it says, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. So he is, in some way, aware of what's happening. And yet, unable to change how he behaves. Now, of course, secular interpretations of this don't make it any sort of divine intervention. They suggest that he actually had a mental breakdown something like that. There are people who have a condition called boanthropy, which is um, very rare, but they basically think they're a cow and they start eating grass and act like animals. Um, But that condition doesn't really quite match with what we're seeing here, um, based on what I read. And there's really no reason to try to naturally explain supernatural events in the Bible. If we believe the Bible, then we should believe what it says. And of course, the seven times that shall pass over you is commonly interpreted as being seven years. And there's not really a reason to dispute that either. Um, Historians have said, oh, well, the Babylonians kept great records. We would have seen a record of this. Um, we can account for so much in Nebuchadnezzar's life. We cannot get seven years out of there where he didn't do anything. That's not strictly true either. For one, we know that civilizations like to propagandize. They like to not admit their king goes nuts. But they also actually have less information about Nebuchadnezzar after his 11th year of reign. This is just a, a fact of the historical record there is a um, excuse me there was an Assyriologist by the name of Stephen Langdon and he curated a um, artifacts at University of Pennsylvania and he had said actually that the latter period of his reign was remarkably poor in its number of literary productions 
and there is a distinct lack of religious references. So he goes from praising Marduk all the time to suddenly not mentioning him at all. Or maybe if he does mention it, in only a political glance. He even says, and I quote, We have scarcely anything but palace inscriptions with little to say about the religious interests of the king. This is presumably after this period. So even though there's no point in history, you can't point to a clay tablet that says, ah, and then he went nuts. Um, We see a change in his life actually recorded. He stopped talking less about Marduk. He was just more concerned with ruling politically, with being a leader in some sense. Now, I'm not going to say that he was therefore completely saved. We don't, we don't really know his ultimate fate or the state of his soul, but we can see that his life changed. Now, this lesson isn't really about the historical evidence for this event, but uh, I thought it was interesting to share. And there is also, um, again, though some scholars are skeptical, there's actually a British Museum uh, cuneiform tablet. Actually, it might not. Yes, a cuneiform tablet. And it is in a very bad state. A lot of it is missing. And some of the words are possibly assumed. Like uh, there's partial words, and then they think, oh, okay, probably was going to say this. And again, it's not evidence of this event, but it's potentially corroborating, um, and so I thought it worth sharing. So this is what it actually says verbatim. I believe the, if you're watching the PowerPoint, the brackets are the assumed corrections because it was in such a bad state. It says, Nebuchadnezzar considered his life appeared of no value to him. And the Babylonian speaks bad counsel to evil Merodach. Then he gives an entirely different order, but he does not heed the word from his lips, the courtiers. He does not show love to son and daughter. Family and clan do not exist. His attention was not directed towards promoting the welfare of Esagil. Esagil is a reminder, a temple of Marduk and Babylon. He prays to the Lord of lords he raised, his hands in supplication. He weeps bitterly to Marduk, the great gods, his prayers go forth to, and so on. If you'll notice here, every almost every single line is incomplete. Some lines are potentially, the words are rebuilt. And the numbers, you'll see it goes 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, 11... Some lines are completely missing. So we don't know that this is about this event, but it is, once more, a corroboration of something changing in Nebuchadnezzar. There being a story about him that people were spreading, that he stopped caring about certain things. And you know what? If he went out into the wilderness for seven years, you'd probably say he stopped caring about his son and daughter also. So I found that very interesting. Again, just wanted to share that. But the actual end of um, this story in Daniel chapter 4 is when his mind returns to him. 
starting in verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Now that's a complete 180, obviously. Again, we don't really know if he clung to that for the rest of his life. But there's something, for once, we have a good example in Nebuchadnezzar. He suffers for seven years. And then he praises God. He doesn't go, well, that was a waste of time. Why would you do that for? He doesn't complain. He doesn't gnash his teeth about it. He got the message. And we need to remember sometimes that when we suffer, we might be getting a message too. That whatever it takes to become humble is worth it. It was certainly worth it for Nebuchadnezzar. He saw the one and truly God. He finally acknowledged him. He acknowledged that he built nothing on his own. The hanging gardens of Babylon, the great walls, the Ishtar Gate, the irrigation systems, his diplomacy and strategy, his conquests, he finally acknowledged where it actually came from. That he was a tool for God's own will. And he was a vessel to make these things happen that God intended. We should be so lucky to understand these things for ourselves. Obviously, thankfully, God isn't using us to conquer nations. But... Nebuchadnezzar was an evil man, and he was used for a purpose to judge the people of Israel, of Judah. And he fulfilled that purpose. And then he thought, I did it. It was all me. Look how great I am. And uh, what's interesting to me, in a sense, is Why does God teach this lesson to Nebuchadnezzar? Why does he show him this mercy? And it is mercy. To cause him this great pain and humble him. Obviously, because he knew Nebuchadnezzar would respond to it. And obviously, because God is merciful. 
and Nebuchadnezzar needed it. So we're going to suffer in our lives. And that's not always going to be because the suffering makes us humble. Sometimes things just happen. But all things work for the good for those who love and believe God. Nebuchadnezzar didn't love and believe God. But he did after that. Again, for how long? I don't know. Did it take? Who knows? That's not the point of this lesson. I'm not trying to pinpoint, hey, just so you know, Nebuchadnezzar's in heaven. I don't know that. But we can see how someone so vain and destructive and violent and appalling and despicable can become someone who worships the Lord God Almighty. And no one is beyond his reach, unless they choose to be. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I like my typo there. Chapter 8, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. There's only one 8. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. It took the Israelites 40 years to be humbled. And none of... None of the original generation passed the test. I mean, Joshua did. Good for him. Um, But we... That was for their benefit. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. It wasn't just a punishment because they were disobedient. It was to humble them and test them. And many failed the test, but their children, the other generation that eventually went to the promised land, they got to see those things happen. They got to see what happened to their parents and grandparents, and they learned from them, just like we can learn from Nebuchadnezzar and from the Israelites and from anyone who suffers for the Lord. So that hopefully we won't have to suffer quite so much. Forty years is a long time. Seven years is a long time. How long do you need to become humble to God? I think all of us in here, if anyone actually still needs to be humble, because I don't know your hearts, hopefully it won't be quite so long. But I know that being a Christian 
I know from personal experience that the more you suffer for Christ, in a sense, the better. Because whatever it is that you have to do is worth it. Because we cannot do this on our own. God needs to help us. We need his help and we need to pray for that and to seek help and continued guidance. And then when we are humbled, we need to remain humble. We need to fight off the temptations of the world that say you're perfect just the way you are. These ideas that, oh, you can do anything if you set your mind to it. You can in some sense, but not everything is worth doing. We need to be focused less on worldly things and more on spiritual things. Less on what we put our bodies through and more with what we put our souls through. So, being humble, again, no matter what it takes, is worth it if you're a Christian. And it can only help. Now, for those who are not Christians and wish to come forward and be baptized, to humble yourselves before the Lord, to serve Him and be obedient and submissive, the time is ready and prepared for you. And for those of you um, who may have uh, sins of a public manner that they need to confess or um, prayers to request, anything that's on your heart that you wish to share with the congregation, now is the time for that as well. And we pray that whatever your need may be, please come forward now as we stand and sing.